cried out to him, and you did everything you could, and you were just like, God, why aren't you answering me? Why won't you do this thing? Why won't you come through for me? Some of you have had to wait on God for a job. Some of you have had to wait on God for a car or for, um, for money to come through to pay the bills. Some of you have had to wait on God for a spouse. Some of you have had to wait on God for a child. And that's extremely hard to do. Some of you might be waiting on God for a friend right now. Maybe some of you are in here this morning and you feel like, I desperately need a friend, someone who can come into my life and, and, and help me and just be there for me and someone who I can go through life with and so I feel like I'm not alone. And, and that's really hard to wait on God for that. And what happens is when we wait on God, when, when we're forced to wait on God for something that we need, we're so tempted to just give up on God's timing and take matters into our own hands. And we're tempted to, when, we're, when we find ourselves in trouble or in some kind of need, we're tempted to just do it ourselves and to save ourselves instead of waiting for God to save us. That's really what it amounts to. Sometimes we forget that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's called the, it's called the law, um, you know, those first five books of the Bible really were written for one main reason. And the, and the reason that those books were written, they're written by Moses to the, to the Jews, to the children of Israel, while they were wandering in the desert. And the main reason that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible was to show the people of Israel how important it is to wait for God. That's really the main reason those books of the Bible were written. I don't know if you are familiar with the history of ancient Israel. Probably many of you are. And, you know, what it is is so, so um, the, the nation of Israel was born in Genesis, and then they, we find that they're in, in the book of Exodus, they are enslaved in Egypt. They find they're in Egypt, and they, they, are, uh, they begin to be slaves of the Egyptians for hundreds of years. And the Israelites were um, crying out to God, asking God to deliver them, and God heard them, and he sent Moses. He sent Moses to deliver the nation of Israel. And uh, eventually, you know, there was the ten plagues and all of that. Some of you have probably heard the story or seen the movie or whatever. And eventually God, he broke the yoke, he broke the bondage, and the, the oppressors, and he delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And there were about a million, a million Israelites strong that left Egypt when they were finally released from bondage. And they were released into the desert. And then after that, they, they encountered quite a few seemingly insurmountable obstacles. One of them being the Red Sea. That's the big one, right? We, we, we read about that story. We've heard about it. It's referenced all throughout the Bible. The Israelites are... are they're on the, the, the shores of the Red Sea. They have, nowhere, they have, to, they have to go around. But the, uh, the Egyptian army had come and they were pressing it up against them. And God sent the, the pillar of fire to protect them. And eventually God, of course, through Moses, he parted the Red Sea and they were able to go through. And that happened time and time again. They're, they're wandering in the desert for years and years. God said, I'm going to send you to a land and it will be your land. I promise you'll get there in my time and, and you'll have everything that you need. You have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. I'm with you. And yet there were all these obstacles. They ran out of food. They ran out of water. There were fears and doubts. And they, would com they just kept complaining. Even though God would always show up, God did the impossible over and over again. He never let them down. He never, he never forgot about them. And they still complained. They still grumbled. They still 
One, at one point, they said, hey, let's go back to Egypt. We had it better there. The food was better. We, we, had, we had fish and, and vegetables, and out here, all we have is this stuff that God sent from the sky, and, and it's, we have to eat the same stuff every day. And so this happened over the course of 40 years, and they just kept looking back instead of looking forward. They kept looking back and thinking about what they didn't have instead of looking ahead to what God promised they would have. And they paid the price for not waiting on God. In fact, out of all of those million people that left e- Egypt, those Israelites, hardly any of them made it to the promised land because they weren't willing to wait for God. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is ta- talks, about, talks about them. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now that last, that last statement there is really important. God wants to teach, in, teach us and, and form in us endurance, something that the ancient Israelites didn't have. That's what we need. We need endurance. So in other words, it's more important how you finish than how you started to God. God wants us to finish this race, to finish this journey, no matter how long it takes for him to do what you think or do, to do what you want or to show himself the way you're thinking he should. No matter how long you have to wait on God, endurance is the key. And everyone who has ever finished well waited for God's salvation. They, they didn't save themselves. They didn't, they didn't give up. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at these, uh, these three kind of astonishing announcements that God made and how those announcements changed the lives of the people who heard them. And all three of the announcements were really about God breaking the silence. Because for 400 years, from the, from the last book of the Old Testament and the last prophecy to what we're going to read about today, there, really, there was no prophet, there was no really word from God, and Israel was waiting. The Jews had been waiting and waiting and waiting. They knew that God had promised to send a Messiah, and yet there, were, there was nation after nation after nation that was coming in and sort of bullying the Israelites, pushing them around, taking their land, taking their taxes, uh, oppressing them, enforcing their rules and, and regulations on them. And Israel was really just tired and weary, and, and um, they were becoming troubled in their hearts and losing heart. And losing hope. And many Israelites, many Jews in the time of Jesus' day were giving up on God and taking matters into their own hands. And they were thinking, you know what, God? You, you promised all this stuff. I've heard all the stories. I've heard about Moses. And I've heard about, you know, King David and Solomon. And I've heard that you're going to send this Messiah. And he's going to come and he's going to deliver us and redeem us. And everything's going to be back to the way it was supposed to be. But I have, 
when is that going to happen? It didn't happen in my dad's lifetime or his dad's lifetime. It's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. So why should I live for you? I'm not going to see this day. Why can't I just, I might as well just live for myself and make, and get the most out of life that I can. I'm not going to wait on you, God. And so many Israelites had given up on God and taken matters into their own hands. And so in Israel, at this time, before these announcements came, there, there was a lot of darkness and a lot of hopelessness until God showed up and made an announcement. And the first announcement, by the way, is not to Mary. It's not to the shepherds. Sometimes we forget about the first people to hear this announcement from God. It was an old, faithful, country-living couple that we're going to read about this morning. So let's look at this first announcement in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what we read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the vision of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So, something you should know. In first century Jewish culture, being childless was a sign of shame, and it was almost like a curse, really. It was a a reproach, they called it. Most Jews would have assumed that if you were childless as a couple, that God was for some reason, disappointed with you or that he was punishing you because he didn't bless you with a child because all Jews believe that children are a blessing from the Lord, and we believe that too. And so Luke goes out of his way to point out that their infertility has nothing to do with God's disappointment with them. That's important. Both of them are living lives that are pleasing to God, and their inability to have children has nothing to do with any sin in their life or anything like that. They haven't done anything wrong. I mean, of course they're sinners, but they're not living in in rebellion against God, or they haven't turned their back on God or given up on God. Now, why is infertility an important part of Zechariah and Elizabeth's story? I know infertility is an important part of some of your stories. Some of you have stories about this, and you have struggled with this in your life and in your marriage, and it's become part of your identity. And it was part of their identity for sure. Probably a bigger part of their identity than it could be for any one of ours. Because in that day and age, it was a much bigger deal. So here's a couple who is expected to be good and to follow and obey God. Why is that? Because they they both come from a family line of priests. So it's in their blood. The priesthood is in their blood. They're expected to obey God and to be faithful. They've served faithfully like like their parents before them. And what did God give them in return? barrenness. Here they are serving faithfully for decades, been faithful in their marriage. They've done what God asked them to do. They've they've stayed on the straight and narrow path, and God has not given them probably the one thing they wanted more than anything else. But here's the thing. They didn't give up on God. They decided that even though God had not answered their prayers for a child, that God was still worth living for. On this day when we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth for the first time, they have long since given up on children, but they have not given up on God. Even though God had not come through for them, even though God had not blessed them with a family, they were going to bless God and serve God. 
They were going to trust God, and they still believed that God was good, and even though God didn't give them what they really wanted, they still praised him. They still loved him. Elizabeth isn't waiting for, to have a child before she starts living her life. She's faithful. She's serving. She's busy. She's immersed in God's word. She's having spiritual influence on other people. Having a child isn't the most important thing to her. And that is why Luke can say that they were living the right way. That's what he means. That's what it means when they were living in a way that pleased God. Because they were waiting. They were waiting. So let's, let's pick up um, the text in verse 8. Now while he, that's uh, Zechariah, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is something that the priest did twice a day so that there was continually incense burning in the temple. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the power and the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here's what's going on. There were a lot of priests back in Jesus' day, and they were ordered by divisions, and they served on a rotation. So there's about 20,000 priests living in Jerusalem at that time. And on Zechariah's rotation served about two weeks out of the year. That's it, because there's so many. And in Zechariah's division, there were close to 1,000 priests. So think about this for a minute. You're, if you're Zechariah, you belong to a division of 1,000 priests. And you only serve two weeks a year. What that means is, you may, actually, the likelihood was you would never be chosen by lot to offer incense in the holy place. Over the course of your entire life. And Zechariah is an old man. So this day, that the lot falls on him, would have been very likely the greatest day of his life. The, most, the biggest honor he's ever had in his entire life. To be able to walk through the thousands... I mean, that's what's happening, okay? He's, he is, uh, he's entering the, actually, I have a picture somewhere. There it is. Um, I couldn't find my laser pointer, so I'm just going to have to try to explain this. <laughs> if you see, that's the temple in Herod's day. Okay, it's a square. It's 172 feet wide, 172 feet long, 172 feet high. And at the bottom of the screen, you can see a little, a little man. That's about the size that he would have been looking up 20 stories uh, to the top of the temple. And that's the entrance to the temple. And then he would have walked in to the holy place where only priests were allowed to enter. And that really long, kind of dark reddish tapestry is the curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place where only the high priest could enter only once a year. That's not where Zechariah was going. 
He was just going in to the holy place to burn incense, okay? But before he did, he literally walked through the temple courts, and there was a crowd of thousands of Jews, literally thousands of Jews who were there gathered on this very special day to see him go in, and then they expected that when he came out, he would have some kind of word from the Lord. (laughs) And so he goes in to the holy place, and he enters, he sees the sacred furniture that the Israelites had made according to the traditions that Moses had established a thousand years earlier. On his left is the golden lampstand, giving out a faint light as the candles burned. On his right was the table of bread. In front of him was the golden altar of incense. And behind the altar is that giant curtain, 72 feet tall. That's the, actual, that's the curtain that was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died. And Zechariah is burning the incense. He's offering prayers for his family. He's offering prayers for his people. He's asking God to speak. He's asking God to send his Messiah, as they always did. And then all of a sudden, he realizes he's not alone. He's not alone. Standing at the right side of the altar is an angel. And like every other time anyone in the Bible sees an angel, he is terrified. He's absolutely terrified to his core. I should probably say that if any of you have, you think you've seen an angel, or if you've heard someone tell you they've seen an angel, one of the first things you should ask them is, oh really, did you think you were going to die? Because that's how people felt when they saw angels. Angels were were these bright, giant, God-like creatures standing as representatives of God. God, think about this. Throughout ancient history, we have narratives, historical narratives, of God sending a single angel to wipe out a nation or to wipe out a city. A single angel. They have immense power. And when they stand in the presence, reveal themselves to a human being, Every time there's fear, there's, there's terror in their hearts. And, and Zechariah is a good man. Imagine if it was you standing in the presence of the angel. You start confessing your sins. I'm so sorry I found my Christmas presents that one year. I'll never do that again. And the first thing that Gabriel, the angel, tells Zechariah is absolutely huge. He tells him, your prayer has been heard. And you and your wife are going to have a son. I don't know when he prayed that prayer. I really don't. I I don't know if he prayed it there today. He might have prayed it 40 years prior. When Isaac prayed for a child from his wife in Genesis, she, she got pregnant too 40 years later. So I don't know when the prayer was heard. I don't know, but it was answered. It was answered in the proper time. And so the angel goes on, he he makes some staggering claims about this son who we know as John the Baptist. That's who the son is going to be. And he says many people will rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great in God's eyes. He's going to be pure. He's going to abstain from strong drink, like take the Nazaritic vow. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will turn many Israelites back to God. That's probably the, maybe the most awesome thing he's going to turn many, many of these Israelites who had given up on God and who had stopped waiting for God to do the thing that they wanted him to do are going to start turning back to God because of Zechariah's son. And there's going to be hope again. 
What an awesome promise. And Zechariah hears all this, and it must have sounded to him too good to be true. Because here's what he says. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, come on, really? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. He's going to be deaf and mute, actually. Until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You know what her reproach was, right? That she couldn't have kids. That was her reproach. That was her shame. And God was going to take it away. And he did. And I want you to listen again with verse 20. Let's look at verse 20 one more time. Because Luke records something there that's easy to miss. As the angel pronounces this kind of punishment on Zechariah, which is a really horrible one. He's got, he just heard the best news of his life and he can't tell anybody. Think about that. It says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, which is at least nine months from then. Because you did not believe my words. Now listen to this. Which will be fulfilled in their time. Or that could be translated at the proper time. It could be translated at the perfect time. And you know what he's saying? You know what the angel's saying? He's saying, in other words, God has had this day marked on his calendar all along. God did not forget about you. God is not late. God is not going, God did not somehow, you know, take a nap and forget that this was all supposed to happen while the Romans were oppressing the nation of Israel. No. This is the right time. This is the proper time. This is the day that God had planned to show up all along. And there was never any reason to doubt him. There was never any reason to give up. There was never any reason to walk away or to think that God was not going to fulfill and be faithful to his promises. It was all leading up to this point. His plan never changed. There was no plan B. There was no backing out. There was no tentative date. It all will happen at God's appointed time. And so here's what I want to leave you with this morning. And this is really important because of how hard this is. But I want you to know this. That waiting for God is always worth it. Waiting for God is always worth it. To live with integrity before God, whether God answers your prayers or not, whether God comes through for you or not. Students, you will be tempted to give up on God at school. Husbands, you will be tempted to give up on God at work. Wives, you will be tempted to give up on God in your marriage or at your work. Those of you who work in sales, you will be tempted to give up on God and take matters into your own hands. Those of you waiting for a child, you'll be tempted to give up on God and to doubt his promises and to make that the most important thing about your life. 
no matter what it is that you're waiting for, you will be tempted to give up on God. When you find yourself in trouble, you'll be tempted to try and save yourself. But it's always worth it to wait for God. Because if there's one thing we know about God from this collection of sacred manuscripts that we call the Bible, it is that God is faithful. He is faithful. He will never, ever leave us alone. He will never change his mind about what he's already said he was going to do. He will never go back on his promises to us. And I know many of you have wondered, we, we've wondered at times, why do I bother? Why do I hope? Why do I keep praying? Why do I keep thinking? Why do I keep, you know, asking God and pleading with God? All I do is suffer and get disappointed. God, where are you? When will you do something about my situation? But God always finishes what he started. He always does. He always answers his children. And after you resist that temptation and after you do the hard thing and after you've suffered for a while and you've stayed the course, God will show himself and he will show himself to be faithful. Do you believe that today? Amen. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. You know, it's interesting. God has, God has chosen to change people's lives through announcements. Isn't that interesting? There's so many different ways that God could have Showing up, he could have, you know, peeled back the clouds. He could have sent a storm, and sometimes God did that. He could have, he could have made it so obvious to everyone. All that we could have communicated to all the whole nation all at once, but instead he chooses to make these this series of announcements to a very select few people, and it's really interesting the people he chooses. And we're going to see that as we go through the, in the next couple of weeks. Every announcement's a little different. Every pe- every person's a little different. But you know what? You know what's even more exciting? That God is still changing the world through an announcement. Did you know that? God is still changing the world through a proclamation that Jesus Christ is alive. And that's all we're told. That's all, that's all we have to do. As God's people, we're supposed to live with integrity before God and make that announcement. That's, we're supposed to be telling people about that all the time. Hey, Jesus Christ has come. He's God in the flesh. He died for our sins, and he rose again, and he's alive, and he's coming back. And that's all that matters. Like we, we call this series, Heaven Came Down. You know, that's, that's the truth. Someday Jesus is going to bring heaven down to us. We, we typically think we're going to heaven someday. We're going to be, you know, flying up with wings or something and go to heaven. But when Jesus returns, that's not how it's described at all. The new heavens and the new earth, it comes down he brings it down. He's going to come riding on the clouds, and we're going to behold him, and we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we're going to be reunited with him forever as he redeems his world. And that is the most awesome thing we could tell people. That's going to change your life more than anything else could. And we're just told to tell people about it. We can't change anybody. We're just supposed to tell them the news and announce this good news over and over and over again, and we're supposed to keep telling it to each other too. You know why? Because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Because we get caught up in anxiety and fear like we talked about last week. We get caught up in what is, when is God going to show up and do something about you know, my trouble and my situation. And we forget, we forget so easily about the announcement. And that when God makes an announcement, he follows through every single time. 
Praise God. Let's uh, close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we can, we can trust your word. We thank you that we know it's reliable. It's been preserved over, over thousands of years so that we have an accurate representation of your revelation to us. And not only that, God, we have more. We have your son who came in the flesh, who is, as Pastor Phil said, the exact representation of your nature. Jesus came to show us what you're really like so that when we read about Jesus and we, can, and we look upon Jesus, we see you, God. We see what you're like. We see your gentleness. We see your compassion. We see your mercy. We see your love. We see your tenderness. We see your justice. We see beauty, and it overwhelms us, God. And we want to be like you. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be changed. We thank you, God, that you sent Jesus to rescue us. We pray, God, that for those people who are here today and they're hurting and, they're, and they've been waiting for you, they've been crying out to you, God, we know that you hear us. We ask that you would answer us. We ask that you would give us peace. That's what, that's what Christmas is about. Peace with you. Joy in our hearts knowing that you have fulfilled your promise, that in Jesus, every promise is yes. So we, we admit today, God, that you are good and that you're faithful and that you would carry us through this week by your great and many promises. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.